Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We have Lisa Sharon Harper with us this morning. Lisa, thank you so much for being here and taking the time out to talk with us. Really, really glad to be here and honored to be uh, speaking with your community. Thank you. Ah. Well, um, if you don't know uh, who Lisa is or more about Lisa, you should. Um, from Ferguson to New York and Germany, South Africa, Australia, uh, she leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. Um, Lisa earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University in New York City. She is the author of several books, including the critically acclaimed The Very Good Gospel, which was absolutely a life-changing book for me. Um, its subtitle is How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Um, you all watching this may have heard of that book because I frequently quote from it um, in uh, my sermons, but you also may have heard of it because it was recognized as the 2016 book of the year by Inglewood Review of Books. Um, so Lisa is a prolific speaker, writer, and activist. She is the founder and president of freedomroad.us, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap in our nation by designing forums and experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action. Um, I was actually first introduced to you, Lisa, um, and your work by my wife, Amy, um, which how is how I'm introduced to all good things, honestly, is through <laughs> her. Um, she heard you on Jen Hatmaker's podcast a few years ago, and mm -hmm. you were talking about your book, The Very Good Gospel. The Hatmakers um, are fellow Austinites, um, and uh, mm -hmm. she listened to it actually on the way back from a court hearing for one of our foster kids. Um, we were foster parents uh, for two years, had three different little boys in our home in that time. And we were both really struggling at this point, driving to and from the Corpus Christi area to, to do trials and court dates for him. Um, and we were on the way back and we were both really just kind of struggling and hurting as we watched this, th these people and this system that were supposed to be protecting this little boy actually inflicting more harm and trauma um, on him mm -hmm. and uh, really wondered where God was in all of it really struggling with that. And so um, on the way home from one of those court dates, Amy is listening to this podcast that you are on. And you said something that Amy and I have both really held on to over the years. It's been transformative for us. And you, you said, if it's not good news for everyone, then it's not good news for anyone. It's not really the gospel of Jesus, right? The gospel of Jesus is good news for everyone. And I remember being in the car and uh, after Amy listened to your interview, she says, hey, you have to listen to Lisa Sharon Harper on this podcast. She's talking about all the stuff that you love to talk about and you're just going to love it. And so I went back, I listened to it and I thought, oh my gosh, she is talking about all the stuff that I love to talking about. I love to talk about. She's doing it so much more eloquently than I ever do. <laughs> so this is someone that I can really learn from. Um, so I bought the very good gospel. I read it and just kind of began to follow all your stuff on freedom road and social media. So cool. Thank you so yeah. much. <laughs> of course. It's, it's been Can amazing. I just say that it's actually, well, I appreciate that. And I just want to say, it's actually a real blessing to hear that from a male pastor that it's, I, I often get letters and communication from women across the world, actually. Um, oh. and I, you know, also from men, but it's always 
it's always in a bit, a bit of a surprise and especially a white man. And so, and I'm sure you understand what I mean, that when you look at the, the libraries of most white pastors, black women are not on their shelves. And so I want to say, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For, well, you're, um, you're very for, welcome. Thank you for teaching me. Yeah. Honestly, it's, yeah. it's been, um, I feel like, you know, even from afar, I've been able to just kind of sit at your feet for a couple of years and learn a lot from you. So it's meant a lot to me. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so to start out, could you tell us, um, you know, we, we read your bio, um, we know that side of it, but that's not necessarily your story. Could you tell us a little bit more of your story? Sure. Well, um, it's funny because when I, whenever I start my story, it's hard for me to start my story without talking about my family because I, I mean, I genuinely believe and actually have come to understand that we are our ancestors like we literally the body the skin the bones the muscle the eyeballs like everything about us was not just we didn't make and didn't just come out of the blue it literally is passed down from our ancestors our parents grandparents great great grandparents back to the 10th 20th 50th generation and so i have been on a search to find more about my family. And actually that's where my next book <laughs> called Fortune, and it'll hopefully be coming out, God, God willing, in 2021. But it traces back, um, I believe 10 generations in my family back to 1662, to the first people who came to this land. And, and it's, it's so amazing as I've been fleshing out the story, I do, I know who I am more, and it's so clear. Um, there's an amazing story of two sisters, two mixed race, black and white sisters um, who uh, who refused. They, they protested the black women's tax that was put the free black women's tax that was put on black women who owned property. They had to pay an extra tax in Maryland around um, the 1700s, mid 1700s. And they literally came out when the tax man came to collect and said, no, and I imagine they probably had their shotguns with them. <laughs> so I'm like, wow, this is where it comes from, right? And then I also know that that line of the family probably, I mean, really did produce people who who bucked the system and said no at various points and also helped lead the charge at different points, which is really exciting. Um, in other parts of my family, um, there are people who were, uh, actually in that part, there were people who were abolitionists, there were folks who were suffragists, um, there were people, and then on a separate line, there were folks who immigrated to America from um, via Puerto Rico, but ultimately from St. Kitts, and doing research on their lives, going back to enslavement in St. Kitts Nevis, um, and also in Antigua, um, uh, oh my gosh, or no, Anguilla. Um, it's just incredible to, to consider um, the traits that are passed down from generation to generation and to know that they ended up with my mom and my dad, who were both members of the civil rights movement. My mom, um, my mom was in SNCC and my dad for a minute, I should say for a minute, he was in CORE. Um, and CORE is the group that actually um, was doing a lot, well, both of them were the groups who were doing the groundwork um, in the South. CORE was the group that did the um, Freedom Summer, um, 1964. Uh, where James Cheney and Goodman and Schwerner were were murdered um, and assassinated by Klansmen who were under the cloak of a deputy sheriff and, and other police officers. Um, and 
my dad actually was supposed to go that summer. Or he was considering it, not supposed to, but he was considering it, but he actually joined too late, so he couldn't go. My mom um, was in SNCC and she helped to offer, SNCC was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and that was the group that, that uh, Stokely Carmichael was a part of. And if you recall in 1966, the year that she joined, um, he, along with Dr. King, led a march called the Meredith March down in Mississippi. And it was because Meredith was marching for, um, for the rights of all um, black Mississippians to go to the university where he had just graduated as the very first student, black student at, um, at UMiss. And so um, he, was a sat he was shot down in the middle of his, his lone walk. And so Stokely Carmichael and um, Martin Luther King Jr. took up the walk along with thousands of other people. Um, and it was a long walk, and they ended up staying overnight in one area, in one group, one town called Greenwood, Mississippi. And in Greenwood, um, Stokely Carmichael got on the back of a truck, and he put his fist up, and he said, Black power! Black power! Black power! And people were like, yes, he said, we got to get us some black power! And that was the beginning of the black power movement. Now, wow. that, those two words had been spoken before. But it wasn't a movement yet. When he said that, it, it just hit something. And as I've been studying Shalom, which is what the, the last book that you read is all about, I've begun to understand what that means. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more today. But my mom, she wasn't there. She joined right after that okay. and actually wow. helped to open up the Philadelphia office. It was their first office in the North. And that's where, we were, where I grew up in Philadelphia. Wow, what a legacy, Lisa. That is incredible. It is. <laughs> it is. But here's the thing. It's not just me. I think that it, if, when we go back, when we go back into our family trees, when we understand our actual story, not just the story that, his, that historians and academic ivory towers wrote about wars and presidents, we begin to understand how our own family intersected with those stories. That's when we understand what actually happened what was the real history. And I would, I would wager that all of our families have, well, I know all of our families have some intersection with those stories. And some of them are heroic and others of them are things we need to actually acknowledge today that we are where we are in part because of the ways they benefited from the system or were oppressed by the system that was developed then. Um, and we, we like to think that all the systems have been dismantled, but they really haven't. They've been dismantled right. and shape-shifted into right. new systems that do the same thing. So again, we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get into the talk. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I, I've actually experienced, it's crazy that you said that. I've experienced something fairly similar. I did the ancestry stuff, um, <laughs> you know, about last year. It was a Father's Day present. Um, and, uh, you know, spit in the vial and sent it off. It felt very weird, but, you know, got everything back. Um, and I traced some lineage all the way back. We went 10 generations back on my mother's side. Um, and my great, 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 all the 10 generations back grandfather came over from Great Britain um, as a pastor, actually. And then his son was a pastor and his son was kind of criminal mischief. And then his son was a pastor. And so it kind of went back and forth as kind of pastoral, a little criminal mischief in there. And as you said, I felt like this kind of mashup of those two things, I've kind of felt like that my whole life, um, yeah. kind of pulled in both of these directions. And it makes so much sense that you're saying like we are literally shaped 
by those people um, all the way down to our very cells and bones and, exactly. and DNA. It is exactly. We are because they were. Yeah, that's good. Oh, that's good. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So you are, we've mentioned the very good gospel a few times. Um, you talk a lot about this concept of shalom that you mentioned in this mm -hmm. book, um, which, like I said, it's been transformative for me. Um, we've taught on it quite a bit. Um, but now that we have the expert um, here to talk about it, um, could you just take a few minutes and school us a little bit on shalom, how it's connected to the gospel of Jesus, um, how we can be practices and purveyors of it in our everyday lives? Absolutely. So I'm going to share my screen with you so that you can see a presentation that I've um, been giving now for a little bit. Um, and it's what it does, it, it actually condenses the, the core message of the very good gospel into, you know, a, a five minute presentation or 10 awesome. minutes. This will be about 10 or 15. Perfect. I'm reading over to get my Bible because <laughs> I forgot to have it in front of me. Um, okay. So Four words that change everything. So if you've read the book, The Very Good Gospel, then you, you know that um, in the very first chapter, I talk about a pilgrimage that I took. Well, this pilgrimage literally did change my life. Um, this pilgrimage was a pilgrimage across 10 states over the course of four weeks. Hello, somebody. That's called expensive. <laughs> um, and we, we took 25 staff and not students, staff and their families from InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on this journey. And um, it was a journey to understand what is, the, what, what is the actual essence of shalom and reconciliation. Um, and I didn't even really know what that word was at the time. I, my understanding of the gospel was the four spiritual laws. Um, you know, it was God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life but you are sinful and therefore separated from God, but Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. And therefore, if you read this prayer at the back of the gold booklet, you get to go to heaven, right? That was my understanding of the gospel. But I got to the end of that summer after, ha after having retraced the Cherokee Trail of Tears, which according to family lore, our family walked that, that Trail of Tears, or at the very least, they wow. escaped it. Wow. Um, and then the second uh, was the African experience in America from slavery through civil rights. And I got to the end of that, having now walked in the shoes of my ancestors. I mean, literally, the whole journey was my family's story. And, and I, I remembered my third great grandmother, Leah Ballard, who was the last adult enslaved woman in our family um, on my mom's line. And I imagined myself, she had 17 children, um, according to our family's story. We, can, we know of 12, but... We believe there were five more before slavery. That's at least the story that's been handed down. And she had at least three husbands, possibly five, as many as five. And we think that she was likely a breeder. That's the reason why she had so many children. Wow. And what do I mean by a breeder? I mean that after the close of the Atlantic slave trade, um, there was uh, something that took over in the United States. Because when you close down... This, the, the line, the funnel for new, fresh African labor, they created a new funnel for African labor, and that was the choice to breed people on farms. They called them breeding farms. Wow. And they, they permeated Virginia and also parts of the northern south. And my ancestors 
uh, that line, Leah's line. And um, we believe was she was definitely based in South Carolina, but I actually believe that her the family that she was enslaved to came from Virginia. And um, so we believe she was a breeder, which meant that her job was to be raped several times a day, every single day, um, until she had children and then get raped more. And a job that she did not get paid for. Um, And I imagine myself going up to Leah Ballard's door and knocking and saying, great, 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 Grandma Leah, great, 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 I have good news for you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But you are sinful and therefore separated from God. So, but Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin. So all you need to do is pray this little prayer at the back of this gold booklet and you get to go to heaven. And I imagined, what would she say to that? Hmm. Would that make her want to jump and shout for hallelujah, for joy? And the answer was a clear no. In fact, I like to joke now that if she lived in the 1980s, she would have said, are you smoking crack? Are you on something? Because do you not see? Do you not see me? And so that threw me. And my whole worldview was disrupted because my worldview was circled around the gospel, my understanding of the gospel. It had changed my life, right? But if the gospel, if the gospel that you understand is not good news to those who need good news the most, then I guarantee you it's not Jesus's gospel. Yeah. And it's not good enough. So that threw me into depression for about a year, <laughs> literally. Yeah. Um, not clinically diagnosed, but I know because I'd never felt any way like that before and not since either. It was, it was depression. And I began to wrangle over this and it really kind of kicked me into 13 years of swimming in this concept called shalom that we learned about in the orientation to that journey, but I still didn't really understand. And so I'm going to share with you these four words that changed everything for me in that journey to learn more about shalom. Um, And they're all found in the first chapter of the Bible, on the first two pages of the whole Bible, and maybe even the first page, depending on how, how, how big your actual Bible yeah. is. You know? <laughs> so, so let's, let's dive into it. The first word, it's not a word, it's actually a phrase. It's tov me'od. It is the word or phrase, very good. So tov is good. Me'od is very. Tov, as, according to um, the Hebrew scholars that I consulted, is actually not meant, that goodness is not meant to be... Um, they don't, they, don't, they don't conceive of it as being located inside the thing. So they're not, they're not looking and saying, this is a good book. They're not saying that as in, it's a book that is made well. No, that's not what they're talking about. They're, or that I am a good person. That actually is not what it's saying. Or that that walrus that God made last, last week was a good walrus. That's not, that's not that. Rather, they place goodness between things. Hmm. So... Goodness is actually about relationship, relatedness. It's about ethics. 
It's about how we live together in the world. And me'od means overwhelming, ferociously good, you know, um, abundantly good, crazy, crazy, crazy good, right? And so when God said in Genesis 1.31, at the end of Genesis 1, God looks around and says, look, in fact, I'll, I'll just read it. God says, so God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good, tov me'od. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So when God said that, what God was really referring to was the relationship between all things. It was the relationship between humanity and God, between men and women and all genders. Hello, somebody. And it was the relationship between us and all creation and the system, the way that things work. All worked to bless all on the first page of the Bible. And so that's the first word. The second word is the word salem, which actually comes earlier in that same day um, in, in this epic Hebrew poem that we call now Genesis 1. We see that salem actually means representative figure. And so it appears in this text. Then God said, let us make humankind in our salem, in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. Okay, so we're going to like park it there. So the word salem means representative figure. And the thing about this word is that it's actually really, truly revolutionary that they used this word. Because representative figure of the king, right, of God. Um, the way that they understood representative figures of God at that time in all civilizations up to that point was that only the royalty represented God. Only royalty had the salem of God in them. In, in all of the civilizations up to that point, that was the truth. So this is breaking with all precedent. Up to this point, Never had Salem be, been cast out to all humanity. And the context within which this was written is important. Because either it was written by Moses, which a lot of people believe, or it was written by a company of priests that were exiting the, ex, the Babylonian exile. And they were on their way into ruling in, in their own temple. In either case, it doesn't really matter which one you believe, but in both cases, it matters that th this is our context because the context is oppression, no matter where you look at it. Whether it's Moses or the priests, they are coming out of slavery. Yeah. Yeah. They're coming out of having been told, you are nobody. Mm -hmm. You do not have agency. You do not have the right to determine the course of your own life or your family's life. We own you. Yeah. And in the case of the Babylonian exile, the, the, the Hebrews were taken to Babylon into a culture that, that the worldview that believed that all humanity was actually created to be enslaved to the gods. Mm. So how much more would the booty of war, the yeah. prizes of war, which they were, how much more would they be expected to then be slaves of those of their of their captors right yeah so so you have the situation where the writer or writers of this text 
are breaking with all precedent at just the moment when they could have claimed power for themselves. Yeah. At exactly the moment when the priest could have said, and God said, let us make the priests in our image. Mm. This is good. Or this is, God really said, good. let us make Moses in our image. Yeah. Yeah. And no one would have been the wiser because that's the way it had always been done. But they didn't. Instead, they democratized power. Yeah. Oh, man. And they, and they could have easily said the same thing right about it could have been men. Um, yes. right? It could have been yeah, just only males in the image. And yes, all that stuff. That's, that's right. And they were, they were clear because they know their context. Their context is, is a post-fall um, right. context where women have been subjugated. And what do they say? They say in the next breath, and God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, God created them male and female. Yeah. He just like in case them. you missed it. In case you missed it. It you really it. is. Let's all. make this clear. It is democratized power. Now, there's a third word here, and that is the word dominion. It's actually the word rada. And so rada actually is, it's, it's that we've chosen, we've chosen to use the English word dominion, but it's not actually what it means. What it really means is, well, literally what it means is to tread down. So I can see where people would really kind of misunderstand what dominion means in this text, this, the English translation. It doesn't mean to dominate. What it means is actually more to steward. The, the context of the story here matters. This is the very beginning. It's the beginning of all vegetation and everything. Stuff is growing up all over the place. It's wild, right? So it's, it's a matter of, of treading down to maintain the wellness of the relatedness between all creation. Yeah. There's a better image of Radah in Genesis 2, though the word is not used. It's when God takes the, the human and places the human in the middle of the garden and says, till and keep it, mm. till and keep. Well, when you translate those from the actual Hebrew, they actually mean serve and protect. Mm. I love that. Serve and protect it. That's what Radah looks like. That's what exercising God's kind of dominion looks like. Not domination and not obliteration, not crushing, but rather service, protection, cultivation, stewardship, maintaining the wellness of all the relationships God just declared very good. So that's Rada, and there are some implications here. The first implication is that very goodness is about the overwhelming wellness of all relatedness in creation. The second of all, of, of all the relate relationships in creation, the second is that to be human is to be made in the image of God. Yeah. Third, and I hope we can all agree on that, that if you are made in the image of God, then you are divinely called by God with the capacity to exercise stewardship of the world. Yeah. And what we have to recognize is that in our world, we have crafted our world according to a lie, mm -hmm. not the truth. Yeah. We have crafted our world according to the lie of human hierarchy according to the lie of the image of God, it's only in some, not in others. Yeah. 
And when, when, we, when we consider the politics, the, the conversations that we have about how we are to live together as a polis, the people, yeah. and when we make decisions about that, we have to consider the reality that when we make decisions about how we will live together in ways that remove or crush or twist or mangle or exploit or exclude any people or people group from the call and capacity to exercise dominion, then what we are also doing is removing, excluding, crushing and exploiting, twisting the image of God on earth. Now consider this, the ancients, when they thought of the image of the king, the health of that image, the wellness of the image was an indication of the wellness of the kingdom. Mm. So wherever that image went all over the world was a marker of where that king ruled. And the health of those images was an indication of the health of the kingdom. But where you saw images that were toppled or crushed or fallen, then you knew that there was war against that king in the kingdom. Wow, that's, that's powerful, Lisa. Yes. I, I think you know what comes into my mind is that um, God's kingdom is only as fully realized in any given place as the um, person who is treated the worst um, is treated, right? And if we yes. crush any person, anyone, any image bearer, um, that is a direct reflection of just how much we have worked to usher in the kingdom of God or not in any given area, city, country, uh, world. That's powerful. That's powerful. That's right. And the way that I would put it, the way that I would put it, Zach, is that when we govern in ways that crush the image of God, what if God experiences that as a declaration of war Mm. against the kingdom of God? Yeah. Yeah. So what will it take? What will it take for us to lay down our arms against God? What will it take for us to have the kind of politics that actively protects and serves and cultivates the image of God in all? What will it take for us to have a kind of politics, conversations and decisions about how we will live together as a polis that honors the image of God in every corner of the world. I think we know. I think we know what it will take. I think we know what it will look like. It looks like the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the rule of God coming to earth. It looks like 
Luke 4, when Jesus shows up in the temple and says, this is why I've come, to free the oppressed. And I would add, to free the oppressed image of God on earth. It looks like Luke 10 with the Good Samaritan. And it looks like John 4 with the woman at the well. And it looks like Acts 2 and 4 when the Spirit of God shows no partiality in Acts 10. And it looks like Galatians 3, 27 to 29. Looks like baptism. And that was our, that was actually the first baptismal litany, liturgy, was it ended up being Galatians 3, 27 to 29. And this is as, how it reads. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And so what I does does Paul mean there? Well, there is literally no longer a Jew or a Greek or a male or a female or right. no, that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that we have been given lenses through which we see the world. And the lenses that we've we have we have seen the world are the lenses of empire, the lenses of human hierarchy. But when you go under the water <laughs> and you come up, your lenses are clean. You don't even have those lenses anymore. Your eyes are washed clean. You can now see the image of God in all. Hmm. And what does that mean? The implication is you can see the call and the capacity of all to exercise dominion in the world, to make decisions that shape the world, to serve the world, to protect the world. And if you do see that, then you must renounce. To bow to. Yeah because of the lenses of empire. And there's one more word, and I'll end with this. It's the word demuth. And it's actually the word likeness. So if you go back, in that same text, it says that we are made in our, our, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. So likeness is interesting here because it means, you know, we're, we're like God. But actually, if you split the hair, what it's really saying is we are like God, but we are not God. Right. So, right. So if I were to go to my third great grandmother now and I were to tell her the good news that I now understand to be the gospel, what I would say to my third great grandmother is great, great, great grandma, Leah, I have good news for you. The king of the kingdom of God has broken into the world in order to confront the kingdoms of men that are hell bent on crushing the image of God on earth. And then I would turn to Leah's master and I would say to Leah's master, oh, Leah's master, I have good news for you. The good news for you is that you are not actually a master. You are simply human. You are not God. And you have the capacity to repent 
of your war against the kingdom of God. Yeah. You have the capacity to, to come down off the scaffolding of the human hierarchy that you have built in order to place yourself on the level with God that you and your ancestors or those whom you benefit from would have declared human beings to be three-fifths of a human being. Mm. And it was so, according to the law. Only God should be able to make those declarations. You have the ability to repent of your war for supremacy. Yeah. And come down and join the community of creation. We're having a party down here. <laughs> You're welcome. Come. Be simply human. And now we can all be the community of creation together. That is good news. Amen. Let it be so. Oh, that's good news for everyone. Um, Gosh, thank you so much for that, Lisa. Um, that was, I hope everyone was writing down, taking notes, because um, that was uh, incredible, incredible stuff. Um, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for sharing that presentation on your screen as well. I really appreciate that. Um, so I want to ask you just one one quick question to, to end with, um, and, and that is <clears throat> all of us, um, we from growing up, from, from nature, from nurture, you know, whatever it is, we've gotten to where we are today. And, um, we hold these, these implicit and explicit biases that, that we see, we have the lenses that you talked about. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, 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 the slavery to the lenses goes away when we place our faith in Jesus and the baptismal waters and all of that, as you so beautifully described, but like Paul says, so many of us go back and we put on the old man again, right? We put on the old lenses again um, because they're comfortable, because it's all we know. Um, and so my question for you is, as we attempt to daily remind ourselves to take the lenses off, to live in the, the new creation, not in the old creation, um, what are some ways that we do that, particularly with people that we have um, incredible differences with? that we have demonized that could be on either side of the political spectrum. It could be race or, or gender or ethnicity or sexual mm -hmm. orientation or anything like that. Mm -hmm. How do we take some really practical steps to take those lenses off every single day? Well, I mean, honestly, the very first step I would say is to go on to the Harvard implicit bias, implicit association test and take the test and okay. not just the race test. There are several tests there that I would really recommend. There's um, tests on just how, how are your, what's your lens on disability? What's your lens on Asian people of Asian descent? What's your lens on race as a, I mean, race and what they mean by race is really black, white. Um, what's your lens on immigrants? They have a lot of different, a lot of different, um, ways for us to begin to see the levels of our bias. And what they say is that it's what the scientists have actually discovered is that it's not possible for our bias levels to be lowered until we become aware of them, mm, that makes sense. which is why they developed the test. Um, and you're going to get really mad at this test, right? You're going to go, wait a minute, they're planning things in my head. Well, yes, they are. And that's part of the test. Sure. So what they, that the whole thing of the test is that they actually, what they're doing is they're, they're building 
they're building images that would create bias and they're they're and now they're saying i dare you to get over them right mm. they're saying and how fast you get over them is a measure of how much bias there was to begin with right yeah. so that's how the test works um, and so I would just really recommend everybody go, go, you can Google Harvard implicit association test, take that test, get aware of the level of your bias toward whiteness or toward ableness or toward, um, being a, a citizen in the United States or, you know, nativism, um, not native American, but nativism. In other words, your bias towards people who were born here as opposed to immigrants. Um, all of those things, because what they, or Christians, and I don't know if they have a Christian test yet, but that's a very big piece in, in our yeah. own legislative history. So when, when you do that, that's your first step. The second step is actually for you now to grow your empathy for the other. So what the scientists have said, and also what I've experienced in my own practice, is that um, as we immerse ourselves in the stories of the other and the communities of the other, then our lenses will literally shift. We will actually, and practice, practice, actively practice, seeing the image of God in the one who is not like myself. So what I actually do, I literally do this. I'm in an Uber car, right? And it's, it's usually an immigrant that is driving the Uber car, although nowadays it's kind of everybody. But in, in D.C., it's most likely going to be somebody from Eritrea, Somalia, or Ethiopia, or something like that, because it's one of the largest populations. And they had a lockdown on the taxi industry before Uber, so they got it now. Um, so I'm going to ask them, where are you from? And then I ask, what did you do before you got here? And inevitably, they tell me they were an engineer, they were an architect, they were doctors, they were, but their credentials did not, they did not translate here. So now they're driving Uber. And, and then I imagine myself looking into their eyes and looking past their eyes to the image of God that is just on the other side of their eyes. And I look for it. Yeah. And then I repent. And then I realize the ways that I have been looking at them as being created to drive me around. Mm. But actually they were created to exercise dominion in the world. Yeah. And it's our policies that have relegated them to Uber. Yeah. yeah. And it's the oldest. I mean, I thought about this the whole time you were talking about that specific part. It's, it's, it's the oldest lie that we've believed, right? And it's the original lie that we've believed that we are actually on the level of God and we get to decide what is good and what is evil and um, who is in and who is out. And um, it was the, uh, what happened with Adam and Eve, it was what happened um, and with the Tower of Babel and and all the way through Cain and Abel, Lamech, the, the entire story, right? Over and over and over again. Um, wow. Thank you. Yeah, I think, that was incredible. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks so much, Zach. I, wanna, I do want to just clarify, though. I think yeah. that what I found in my research in the scripture, as I've been looking for the through line, I think that at the heart of sin is the impulse to dominate. That's really what sin at the heart of it really is. If we were to ask the question, what is sin now with this understanding of what is the good news? If, if very goodness is the radical wellness of all relationships, then sin is actually then anything that breaks any of those yeah. relationships. And domination is the number one thing that breaks relationship, whether it's domination of self through shame 
or domination across genders or domination within families, as you saw with Cain and Abel, or domination um, within families, domestic abuse and violence, domination of us against the, the rest of creation, the, the exploitation of the earth as opposed to the cultivation of it um, and the servanthood of it, or domination between ethnic groups, as you see in the, the slave trade and the current day, modern day slave trade and the exploitation of, of immigrants in Texas and across the entire South and actually up into the Midwest through the exploitation of their labor without, without protections for their labor or proper pay, you know, valuing their labor. So yes, it does. It's as old as Genesis 3, as the fall, but there are really particular ways that we have, we have had manifestations of that in our world even up to today. Thank you so much, Lisa. Well, I appreciate your time tremendously and um, your insight. And uh, I can't wait to have everyone see it on Sunday morning.